Chapter 3 A Tour of Cabin Life Introduction to the Area You may have heard of Montana. You may have seen movies featuring Montana. You may have been to Montana. You might even live in Montana. By now, there's not much context of where we situated. Like any other state, the regions within the state will vary. The eastern half is flat, a mere extension of North Dakota. Heading westward, the Rocky Mountains begin with fury. Being that we were in the northwestern part of the state, we were getting into some elevations on the other side of the Continental Divide, but still in a valley. Not as high as Colorado, but unmistakably hiked up from the sea levels. The cabin rested at an elevation of 3,600 feet. The property hugged some train tracks on the northern tip and comprised level ground that gave way to around 200 acres of rolling hills. Apparently, the trees were planted back in the late 1960s or early 1970s after the land was clear-cut, so the growth meant those trees competed for resources. The result was those trees were not as healthy as naturally occurring forest growth and required thinning to promote a proper balance. This health is a major factor in forest fires, which is why the state justified giving out a stipend to the property owner to thin a large section. The skeet shooting site on the southeast corner provided a nice overlook of the northern edge of the valley. There was an unobstructed view of the sky with minimal risk of shooting bystanders or wandering hikers with a short range of a shotgun. Going further up the two-track was a cleared hill with a width of nearly 20 yards that would later be used for skiing and tubing. At the top was another view, Kim's Peak, named after the owner's good friend, a field general's view that revealed the entire property. With plenty of sprawling out to be done on 200 acres, that amount of room was amplified by the fact that just south was approximately 16 square miles of Stillwater State Forest. There were primitive roads and two tracks throughout that area making most of the prominent lakes accessible during the non-winter seasons. This land was a potent mix of pine and tamarack, along with some deciduous trees. The town of Whitefish rested beyond the forest land to the south, squatting at the bottommost tip of a fairly sizable and serene lake, Whitefish Lake. The community would also be known as Stumptown because of its history of being clear-cut and seemed to have all of your basic needs. The layout would be best described by five sections that mattered most to us. The southern end afforded a single entrance or exit to most of the rest of the world. This highway slows to a commercially zoned crawl once the pavement meets the city limits. A grocery store and bowling alley featured most saliently on this lay of the land. The bowling alley appeared noteworthy. Could it be more than just a bowling alley? The northern tip boasted the library, train station, and beach, a quaint downtown nestled close by showcasing a breathtaking view of the distant mountains. Yet the shops, restaurants, and bars were well beyond our budget to pay much attention to. A post office, bank, photo lab, and laundromat were clustered two blocks away, serving as perhaps the most utilized area. The remaining northwest section allowed the highway to speed back up and steer us homeward. 
Though we did not have much to do with the town itself, it was our lifeline to the outside world and seemed fixed to boom at the turn of the millennium. East of Whitefish Lake lay a vast mountain chain, the Whitefish Range. A few exposed peaks commanded attention from day one. Such views they must provide. To the right boasted Big Mountain, which hosted fairly world-class skiing. We had absolutely nothing to do with that. At that stage in my life, I had only tried skiing once. We did not have much money, so, to be honest, it acted as just another spot on the map for us, nothing more. Beyond those peaks was Glacier National Park, with less than an hour's drive to get there. We had arrived in the autumn with a lot of work front-loaded, so traveling to the park while it remained accessible was never a plan either. To the north of the property, beyond the tracks, mixed intermittent private property and more undeveloped state land. Moving northeast, extending past the tip of Whitefish Lake, comprised more of the same, marshy lands and more private property, often problematic to discern between the two. About an hour's drive up Highway 93 would have taken us to the border with British Columbia. West of Highway 93 possessed nothing that we would concern ourselves with much. There was the Stillwater River, where we would try fishing once or twice. The cabin itself revealed a beautiful one-and-a-half-story fixture with two bedrooms, a large living area, kitchen, huge porch, and a loft with stairs leading up to it. She housed many amenities, running water, electric, septic, baseboard heaters, and wood-burning stove. We were not straight out of the 1800s as my childhood envisioned, but we did not care. The loft covered almost half of the cabin, so the floor space had plenty more room for beds and a vantage point that looked down over the first floor. Such a location would also provide a porthole to Flathead Valley out the large bay windows in front. There were bedrooms for each of us, with a blanket to provide some privacy and insulation. Buried within one bedroom, which would become Andy's room, unearthed a crawl space for lightly used overflow items. The living area owned a couch and a lazy boy catered to surround the stove, which became our beloved television set. The kitchen provided a dinner table, sink, and surface area that fit a hot plate for cooking. A half-height fridge freezer cooled our perishables. What more do you really need? Well, if you want a yard area with a fire pit, then you have that too. Walking out the front door and past the beautiful porch displays an open mixture of grass and rock, centered by a fire pit. Hunching underneath the porch revealed an empty space that would consume a large part of the fall months. What the space missed was firewood, save a couple of cords that the owner and family had already harvested and processed. Northwest Montana was to become my playground. What were the needs of the cabin? With a roof over our heads accounted for, the second most item of importance was food. Most of the money saved accounted for food expenses. I tucked money aside at Glacier National Bank upon arrival. With a fuzzy sense of how long we would be staying, through part of winter appeared like a reasonable minimum estimation. The treachery of the back roads we relied on in wintertime were unknown. 
We had no snowmobile, so preparing for at least a month of self-sustenance fit the reality. Ideally, we would be supplied for much longer than that. We demanded a lot of non-perishable food such as powdered milk, canned foods, noodles, sugar, oatmeal, peanut butter, and powdered juice. I shopped for raw materials to make some foods from scratch, in anticipation of excessive amounts of time once winter hit. Making homemade bread or even hunting seemed ideal and primordial. Should there be a desperate need to resupply, we soon discovered that there were neighbors a third of a mile away. By no stretch were we so remote that we would have to make life-or-death decisions. Yet, reaching out for help would be self-defeating, a failure in the experiment of self-reliance. Embracing the lifestyle meant avoiding reliance on others at almost all costs. With non-perishables quickly accounted for, we could focus on some more desired foods. Unsure of how stable the electric would be, we had to acknowledge the potentiality for food spoilage. Yet, once temperatures went below 40 degrees, we could even buy perishable foods with no concern for that. We had a miniature fridge, but an option to keep food safely stored underground outside fell within reach should the need ever arrive. The cooler temperatures would hinder any spoiling. There was an ample supply of water stored, but this would never be much of a concern either. Before snowfall, we had a bounty of lakes that, once purified, could wet our whistles as necessary. Once those froze over, we would have the snow gift-wrapped right on our doorstep, requiring only some heat to make potable. We did not drink or do drugs, thus avoiding that expense to account for. We would not allow such an easy escape to the beautiful boredoms that we were soon up against. Only our minds, or absence of them, would entertain the slowest and most upturned moments of cabin fever. I did not know exactly how cold northwest Montana would be, but from experience in northern Ohio, the climate had to be at least considerably colder. Our heating situation provided baseboard heaters in the two bedrooms and probably elsewhere. Being that we were trying to be good denizens and minimizing the electric cost that someone else was paying for, we decided they only could be used sparingly at a baseline setting. Basically, to keep the cabin from getting close to freezing. The critical thing to consider about electric heat was that at any point, that option could be unavailable. We did not have a generator. Our principal source of reliable warmth came from a wood-burning stove. This was the only genuine sense of survival needs. Having never lived through a winter in Montana in a cabin, we had absolutely no idea how much wood we would burn through. If we ran out of wood and the electricity proved unreliable, we would potentially freeze to death. It might sound ridiculous to say that we could run out of wood while living among tall trees, but there was much work and preparation that must be considered. Gathering and chopping wood in deep snow is not for the faint at heart. That is also assuming that the wood is properly cured and free of moisture, which is tough to guarantee the further past summer we waited. We surmised with blindfolds as to how reliable the stove would be. From some reading, chimneys risk getting plugged and require maintenance from time to time. Some things could be done to prolong the usefulness, but eventually, 
even the best-maintained systems require maintenance. The plan was to use it only at night or on special occasions. During the day meant dressing warmer with slight use of baseboard heaters for localized heating as needed. By rudimentary estimation, only three logs a night would do the trick. Ninety logs per month. Presumably double that once the mercury dropped. The average low bottomed out around 15 degrees in January. Not Antarctica, but cold. We may even have to triple that if nights plunged below zero. One thing was for certain. We needed a lot more wood. We had a chainsaw, an axe, and an unshakable fear that what we have stored away was still not enough. We had no desire to have phones in the cabin, nor did we seek cell phone coverage, a relatively new option in those days. Looking back at the moment, we may have rudely shunned the notion of facilitating the installation of landline services. If we did, then that would be wrong. But make no mistake, we did not want a phone, at all. A phone represented civilization, and with such youth, we did not process the probability of emergencies as one would once older. There was no real computer and certainly no internet at our disposal. While internet service emerged swiftly and began to take hold as residential service in an urban area, this was not an option at the cabin. Even if we wanted the connectivity, such an amenity would not have been available without phone service. Satellite internet needed years to pass in being ready on a consumer basis. There was no means to watch television. With no television, opportunities for gaming systems vanished. There was a radio. I brought a word processor. We hauled out books. A wood-burning stove served as the master of ceremony. That became the television. Being a gigantic movie buff, we had some foresight and recorded a healthy handful of movies on audio tape. They were great for road trips, and they were better fireside. The actual communication from the cabin as it would play out was reading and writing letters, an event that is difficult to process nowadays, even for me. We'll get into this later. Simpler Living Keep it simple. What better way to exemplify that than by having a heading with only two sentences? Unfortunately, further explanation is needed. The topic of being simple is a complicated matter, and by making a goal about keeping things simple, that goal was unattainable. By simple living, there can be many facets of life that are benefited by simplicity. To me, it is just identifying what I need to do and then identifying what I want to do. The list of needs should be brief, the shorter the better. In understanding needs, it is saying that by taking away this need, the sustainability of that chosen lifestyle is significantly degraded. The cabin arrangement was not completely self-sufficient by any means, with both electricity and running water. Civilization was not markedly far away, yet the property was close enough to living remotely and homesteading as I would likely ever know, and I wanted to take full advantage. Rustic needs versus needs in the city are as much different as they are the same. As already touched on, living in a cabin in northern Montana, we needed to stay warm. Not much different from residing in a house in some northern city. 
We did not need electricity to keep ourselves warm, but we had it and were comforted by it. We needed firewood because at no point would it matter what external circumstances occurred to remain warm by the fire. Firewood meant warmth no matter what, unless their roof blew off in some nasty storm. The more efficient we were, the less we would need, saving more time for fun. I later learned that I was so efficient at smelling good that I only needed to shower every few weeks. Well, the smelling good part was probably untrue, but the shower frequency was exact. We were hermit wannabes and there were no ladies or management to impress, no customers asked to kiss, shaving and haircuts were done for. Hygiene was still important enough, though, that a warm cloth and baby wipes would achieve most of the sanitation requirements. Laundry was conducted each trip to town we made, though a wash basin would have been a preferred way to clean clothing. A plastic storage tub filled with soapy water would be attempted, but could not quite do the trick to satisfaction. Almost every day, I made my own meals, sometimes even from scratch. I made bread a few times by devising a makeshift oven out of hanger frames and foil. I then set it above the wood-burning stove. The result would turn out okay, but was way too much work and messy for what it was worth to me. I found out quickly how much time there is in cabin living. An awakening occurred for someone who already thought he was good at keeping busy. A positive kind of awakening. Time seemed to go much, much slower. A kid waiting for Christmas morning to finally arrive slow. To fill many mornings, several hours would pass just sitting in a comfortable chair with coffee on the upper deck of the cabin while peering out into the valley through the large bay windows. The cabin would cool down just enough at dawn after the wood-burning stove's beautiful warmth faded from the night before so that a warm drink balanced out the coziness. The options and distractions were curbed, with no television to soak up filler time and no nauseous phone ring to break the peace and solitude of living. Even the thought of the sound was traumatic. Landline phone calls would have a significant role in moderation, but that was what the payphones in town were for. To have no contact in the cabin meant we were untouchable. There were letters to replace the use of phones, especially once the might of cabin fever cast its ominous shadow on the beloved cabin.